Part 5 of John Bull's Vineyard by Hubert de Castella. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11 Rutherglen, a sale of wine. The warm district of the Murray, of which Rutherglen is the centre, supplies at present nearly one third of the wine grown in Victoria, although it occupies only one four hundredth of the total superficies of her land. The growth of that district must necessarily take a large place among the exhibits of the colony. They will probably have a weighty influence on the fate of Australian wines in England. It is therefore of interest to consider the circumstances of that large production. A vast plain of most fertile heavy red soil, thirty miles in diameter, stretches alongside the mighty Murray, encircled by that river, by the river Ovens, and by a chain of mountains, the Barambogis. The main Australian artery, the road from Melbourne to Sydney, passes through the middle, and before agriculture was much thought of, Three or four groups of rich quartz reefs had assembled on it a well-to-do population of miners. In that plain, where nature had not put a single hindrance to cultivation, half a million of acres were suddenly offered for selection. A host of strong, steady and intelligent men took possession of it. Houses and farms appeared as by magic. Long lines of fencing seemed as if spun in a night, like the cobwebs of the spiders on the eve of rain. A few years more, and endless fields of wheat and oats, plantations of tobacco, orchards with oranges, citrons and lemons, and lastly, vines, had replaced the native grass. As to the grapes, they had been planted as a speculation, mostly by English, Scotch and Irish farmers, ignorant of the manufacture of wine who had been prompted to venture into it on the representation of the fitness of their country. When wine was produced, it was found too strong for daily consumption in that warm region. As there was no outside market, and as the railway was not constructed, a reaction took place. Shortly before the Melbourne exhibition, one of the large vineyards of the district, held by a syndicate, was sold for the bare value of the land. At the same time, close to the mining township of Rutherglen, in a small enclosure alongside a broad track of overturned soil, which marked an exhausted seam of gold, a middle-aged German bachelor, half a man of letters and a thorough man of vines, cultivated a vineyard of six acres. He was a kind of recluse, worked alone his ground, and accumulated his crops. His casks were his friends, and only now and then, if pressed by his modest wants, he parted with any. When the demand for Australian wine revived in Melbourne, an innkeeper, his neighbour, took samples from him to a city merchant. Struck with their quality, and being told that to obtain these wines, he had to find the maker in a selling mood. The merchant arrived with a round sum to tempt him into a contract, to which the figures only were wanting. Our wine-grower's cellar was a most primitive one, a wooden structure, covered with bark, stocked only with French hogsheads. One hundred and twenty of them contained about seven thousand gallons of wine, the produce of his six acres during three years, stored next to his room so that he could watch over them. And truly valuable casks they were, 
being worth nearly five shillings per gallon, £1,680 was paid him. The news of that sale spread like wildfire in the district. It was no longer speculation. The little shed, the small green vineyard, which everyone saw now glorified at the entrance of the township, had revealed the future, but it rested not there. Six months after, it became known that the 7,000 gallons of the German were resold in Melbourne in one single day at auction, in small casks of 30 gallons each, and that the enterprising purchaser had doubled his money. Then, other wine merchants appeared in the district, in quest of similar wines, ready to pay similar prices. Trenching ground and planting began in earnest again, and in four years the number of acres under vines in the shire of Rutherglen alone increased from 700 acres, reported by the statistics of 1881, to about 3,500 at the present time. Chapter 12. Things which may happen. The enterprise of a few may fail, but, when the vine is planted by thousands of people, when every homestead has its vineyard, the industry may be considered as established. In the Shire of Rutherglen, there are now five wine growers cultivating an average of 200 acres each, and 147 farmers, an average of 12 acres. The population of the Shire, exclusive of the town, is about 2,000 inhabitants. They produce, out of their 3,000 acres in full bearing, counting only 250 gallons to the acre, 750,000 gallons of wine per annum, an average of 375 gallons per head. This will increase considerably every year. The cost of wine growing is so moderate in those favoured warm countries that the industry must succeed there. Whether this is to happen in a very near or in a remote future depends upon the directions given to these populations. As we said before, the London Exhibition of 1886 is to be the great educational event for Australian growers. Australia's wines are, we are told, to be served at the meals of the people of England, at the restaurants of the exhibition, and also retailed at the bars set apart for that purpose in the fairy gardens of Kensington, where scores of thousands of people, happy people, lounge and enjoy themselves whilst they gain information. This time it is not a show of single bottles, a tasting of specialities, a competition of samples. This is a general inquiry, a plain question, can Australia supply the good alimentary wines that men of all countries demand nowadays, and which commerce can transport to and from every corner of the globe? And now I am on the threshold of my troubles. On the one side, we, the Australian growers, stand full of faith, of love, of pride in the product of our vines, of confidence in our skill, and ready to resist any aspersions. And on the other hand, there is a great and decisive trial coming on, where we are called to exhibit ourselves before a world of critics. But what if we are not sufficiently prepared for the ordeal? If, like a rustic cousin invited to the feast of a distinguished kinsman, we are sent back to learn manners. Would not poor Australia's fortune, even though she possesses so many qualities, be retarded for years? 
It is the feeling of this danger which prompts me to put all timidity, all considerations, all vergogne, aside, to risk all displeasure, and to talk, at least to try to talk, of our vines, as if I were some absolute stranger. If we be in every way successful in London, what will have been written here will matter very little, but if we are blamed in some points, and if I have succeeded in explaining beforehand the circumstances of our position, my labour, for it is not an easy task, will not have been in vain. We have just seen that the produce of the Rutherglen district was nearly 400 gallons per inhabitant, an enormous proportion, the more so as they do not, at least did not, drink wine there. Three years ago I paid a visit to that district. Cordially received, I could not believe my senses when, in some of the largest vineyards, English ale, Scotch whisky and French brandy were offered me by their proprietors. They had scores of thousands of gallons of wine in their large cellars a little way off, and not a single bottle in their houses. We do not drink wine, they told me. Again, on another occasion, at an agricultural show banquet, which collected in the evening some sixty or more of the principal people of the shire, almost all of them wine growers, tea was mostly drunk. During the day we had been judging wines, certainly some hundreds of samples, a display showing the importance of the industry. Among these, alongside an unfortunate quantity of sweet and strong ones, there were a number of perfect wines, clean, straight, droit, fit to be drunk at any meal. I asked one of the stewards of the banquet, who had been there in charge of the exhibits during the day, to let me have a bottle of one of these wines, and I enjoyed my dinner. Only a few joined in drinking wine during our meal. This state of things, preponderant production of wines too strong for ordinary consumption, is due in great measure to the influence of a certain commerce which asks for a high degree of alcoholic strength in wine at a minimum of price, in order to effect manipulations afterwards. Alcohol is the virtue, or rather the vice, which the growers are advised to secure. Thus influenced, even in their local exhibitions, the vignerons who organise them, forgetful of past lessons and indulging in self-glorification, instead of favouring clean, dry wines as light as their climate can produce, adjudicates the greatest number of prizes to what their list of awards calls sweet, full-bodied red and sweet, full-bodied white, abomination of desolation. What will it serve them to fill their cellars with undrinkable wines, even if for a short time? Wine cellars and grocers are ready to give a larger price for sweet and strong, which the prosperous Australian middle classes only prefer until they are educated to lighter wines. That consumption is limited, and that market soon glutted. The trade in wine must, within the ten years that are to come, undergo as great a change as that of meat, of flour or wool have suffered during the past ten. Two kinds of wines must disappear from the markets of the countries which do not grow the vine, the spurious strong one and the weak mixtures. How wonderful the ways of providence! Just at the time when wine, like the other primary necessaries of life, is to be reduced in price for the comfort of the millions of men, 
a sudden improvement in its manufacture is prepared, and this by the most unexpected agent, by the scourge of the vine itself, the phylloxera. Hitherto, France has had almost the monopoly of the science of winemaking. Suddenly, the terrible aphis appears. Her vintages in five years are reduced from an average of 1,300 millions of gallons to an annual production of 800 millions. Up to the apparition of the phylloxera, she imported only about half a million of gallons of exotic wines. Since the invasion in 1884, her importations have been 178 millions of gallons from Spain, Portugal, Italy and Hungary. Even from John Bull's vineyard, the Cape of Good Hope, they are sending now ordinary wines to Marseille. France, during 1884, paid nearly 10 million sterling for the wine she bought from these countries. The result of the concentration in France of the viticole production of Europe, of the wines which supply the international traffic of the universal market, is a great impulse given to viticulture in all countries. At first France took from her neighbours anything that had strength and colour, but after a year or two she required well-made wines, and discrimination arose. She became not only the precious client of the nations waking up to wealth by her wants, but by her agents visiting their vineyards and directing their vignerons. She advanced the propagation of proper manufacture. At the same time that she poured her treasures upon the foreign growers, she forced on them the adoption of the best modes of winemaking. France is the benefactor, yet it is doubtful if the emancipated nations will remain tributary to their teacher. When they will produce uniformly the fine and good wines perfectly neutral, viz. without sugar, rich in alcohol and colour, which they are now taught to grow, why should these perfect wines go to set to receive other certificates of origin and be handicapped by extra freights and artificial manipulation? Set alone during 1881, has received from Spain only over 27 millions of gallons of wine. No doubt the geographical situation counts for much in this case, but in another ten years, when freight will be still lower, vessels still larger will transport well-made wines direct from Asia Minor, from Greece, from America, from Australia. Will not the commerce of wine be profoundly altered? Victoria will be amongst the first, ready for that supply. All her northern territory between the River Murray and the Dividing Ranges can produce the fine and good wines, perfectly neutral, full of flavour, savoureux, rich in colour, which are recognised as the basis of alimentary wines. It is only a matter of proper manufacture. Chapter 13. Cagnapella a few weeks ago, on an early winter's morning, I was leaving the Achuca with a wine-grower of the Murray, Mr. Fulton, bound for a visit to his vineyard about 18 miles from that town. There is nothing more beautiful than a winter's day in the north of Victoria. The sun is so brilliant, the air so bracing and pure, the colour of everything in nature so exquisitely fine. You feel your lungs enlarged, joy in your breast, and your eyes are at a constant feast. 
as we rolled away noiselessly along the sandy road in a light buggy drawn by a pair of swift horses. We were discussing topics of mutual interest, cultivation and vinification. I had just written my two previous chapters on fermentation. An estimable man, Mr James Smith, well known in Melbourne, and who, as Commissioner of Victoria at the Universal Wine Exhibition of Bordeaux in 1882, had brought back from France and Italy the best books on wine and vines he could procure, had lent me quite a viticol library. I had read these books eagerly, two Italian works especially, one, Il Vino by Gaetano Cantoni, published in 1882, a charmingly written book, the other, a splendid and complete theory and practice of viticulture by Polacci, published in Milan in 1883, under the auspices of the Italian government. I was glad to find that Pasteur's experiment on the bloom of the grape was not mentioned anywhere, for I had grown fond and proud of my claim of calling attention to his discovery for the practical operations of winemaking. To me, his theory explained not only the fermentation of the must, but also the respective value of different kinds of grapes, the action of the weather and rain on the fruit, the advantage of keeping the stalks in the must, etc., etc. Even more, outside of the domain of the grape, I began to see bloom in everything. Is not all in this world a question of proper fermentation, and is it not the bloom which decides for our happiness or for our misery? Happiness if we discover it and save it, misery if we allow it to be washed off or destroyed. We halted on our way at Cagnapella, an inn kept by an old Württemberger named Gottlieb Eisley. His wife was an Englishwoman from Kent, a model of activity, of order and tidiness. Nearly sixty years of age, tall and thin, her features retained a real ensemble of beauty, even of distinction. Within a few miles, she had two sons, three selectors with handsome farms, and a daughter married a little way off. Her youngest child, a lad of sixteen, was the only one living at home. A few years before, I had been there and admired their wines, the perfection of which I had then attributed to their practice of leaving their must after vintage, long undisturbed. This time, the old man was very ill in his room, and had been so for some months. "'Oh, sir,' said his wife, "'I'm afraid our last vintage will be all spoiled. Isley is so jealous of his new wines. He made us promise not to touch them, and since the day they were put into casks, they have neither been filled nor racked off. With some difficulty we persuaded the old man to give his key to his wife and to allow her to show us the last made wines. We were in September, therefore six months after the Australian vintage. A dozen casks of three hundred gallons each were there. The bungs were surrounded with clay to prevent air from entering them, a useless precaution, as there was ullage in all, in some as much as two feet. We began with white wines, when the young son who came with his mother and us let the wine drawn from the cask with a tin tube fall into a tumbler. It was brilliant liquid amber. As to the taste, it was a perfect unity of aromas, free from sugar, from alcoholic smell, a rich wine, 
but sound soft and mellow like fresh milk. We passed to the red wines, the most interesting, for the red is the true alimentary wine, that which contains all restorative elements. We chose a cask in which there was at least a foot of vacuum. The wine was perfect, brilliant, sound, again free from any sweetness, rich in aroma, full and vigorous, but not strong, just like the best Valtellina wine which you may have met with in the Griton and in Tyrol. I took a sample from one of the casks of new red wine to have its alcoholic strength tested in Melbourne. We tried one cask after another. They were all equally good. There were wines of three different years, all perfectly sound, and this to my great wonder, for some of these casks of 300 gallons capacity had only a foot of wine in them. These were the bank of the owners, on which they drew, through the tap, when customers wanted a few gallons of their wines. Anxious to ascertain exactly the mode of fermentation employed for the manufacture of these truly remarkable wines, I asked the good old woman to show me their presses and appliances. The cellar was excavated in the ground, as at Great Western, in the solid yellow clay, and also without any walls being necessary to prevent it from falling in. At the back of the wooden shed which covered it, there was a skillion containing a few large tubs, an open vat capable of holding 400 gallons, and one solitary wooden press with an iron screw. You see, the good mother explained, when we make our vintage we are a few hands only. My grandchildren pick the grapes, and my old man, myself and the sons make the wine. The grapes are mashed into these tubs, which are emptied into our vat. When the vat is full, we leave it just to give the first bubble of strong fermentation to get a good colour, sometimes one day and sometimes two, and we empty gradually the vat on the press. As the press is so small, it takes two or three times to do it, but we press very hard, we move and cut the mark several times, and we lose no juice. We put all the juice in the same cask below, and we never fill up until we rack off. The cask you have taken a sample from was never disturbed since the day the must was put into it. Their white wines were made in the same manner, except the sojourn in the vat, unnecessary since colour was not wanted. The mark put on the press in successive small quantities was pressed until nothing but dry skins and stalks remained which were given to their pigs. This is all repetition, but if, after the perusal of this little book, a reader perfectly ignorant of viticulture can see through the complicated theories of wine-making, if he can, all becoming gradually intelligible to him, realise when sipping his wine, whether it was well or badly made, the result is worth the loss of time. We continued our journey, and arrived at Mr. Fulton's vineyard, a well-kept establishment in a lovely situation, a hill of forty acres of vines, three parts surrounded by a broad and blue lagoon. There I found a cellar full of excellent wines. The practice was complete fermentation in the vats, the plants being proportionate to the production. Longer fermentation than in former days had already been adopted by the proprietor, out of a large cask, the wine of which had fermented twenty days, 
we took a bottle of fine red wine, to have its strength tested, alongside of that which we had taken at old Isilis a few hours before. End of part five.